Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. The title of my sermon is The Right Message and the Right Time. Allow me to read a small portion of scripture for you from the 24th chapter of Acts just to get us rolling for this today. Starting in the fifth verse, it says, We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He's a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Now, I, I know it's just kind of an abrupt jump into Scripture, and I guess I should apologize for that. I was assuming maybe we'd be able to tie that into the, uh, the context of what this is. But this is the opening arguments, the opening statements of the uh, prosecution of... Uh, Paul, of the Jews, against Paul, trying to make a case against him. And the uh, opening statements of the prosecution are bringing all kinds of slanderous accusations uh, against him. And then verse 9 says, uh, the other Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. And when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul made his reply to those opening accusations. Paul said, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation. So I gladly make my defense. Now that was typical protocol for anybody speaking before the courts in this culture, in this day and age, and it would be similar in our culture as well, is to say something nice about the governor, about the judge, about the one hearing the case, and flatter them a little bit and uh, express confidence that you're a good person and I know you're going to do what is right. And the, uh, the, the uh, prosecution opened up their uh, statement with a, a similar uh, accolades for Felix. And then Paul opens up by saying the same thing. You're, you've been doing this for a long time. I've got confidence you in you. And, and before you, I'm going to gladly make my defense. Here's his defense. You can, you can easily verify, he says, that no more than 12 days ago, I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing, arguing with anyone in the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues, or anywhere else in the city. And they cannot prove to you the charges that they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way. Again, we see that term, the way, which they call a sect, and I'll explain that. 
I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men who are accusing me, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Verse 16, take particular note of this. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Now my first point that I want to study is the power of integrity. Paul starts uh, in, in Acts 23, 1, you remember his opening statement before the Sanhedrin, when the very first thing that came out of his mouth is he says, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience this day. That's what got him slapped in the mouth. They didn't like that. But he was proclaiming his innocence, his integrity. And then in verses 10 through 16, as Paul makes his opening statement, he, de he doubles down on his proclamation of his, his innocence. Uh, the first thing that Paul does as I, I break down his, his opening statement is he says, these facts are easily verifiable. Now that goes a long way in court. Can it be verified? The second thing he says is my accusers have zero proof of anything they've accused me of. Not a one of them has any proof I was arguing in the temple. Not a one of them has a single shred of proof that I was stirring people up in the synagogue or anywhere else. They are accusing, but they have no witnesses. They have nothing. Number three, he says, the Sanhedrin listened to my case, and they did not bring any charges against me. I have no accusers even from them. Number four, he says, the prosecutor accuses me of stirring up trouble all over the world. Give me a break. And he says, if there are people elsewhere that have proof that I was stirring up trouble other than here, out of their jurisdiction, let them bring their witnesses. Let them testify against me. I happen to notice there's nobody here. He said, I'm accused of being a ringleader of what they call the Nazarene sect. Now, that's the first time we've seen that phrase used. And these people who were struggling with the evolution of Christianity uh, didn't know what to call it, didn't know how to classify it, where to categorize it. So this is one of the terms they came up with to describe it. They called it the Nazarene sect. You're, you're probably way ahead of me on this. Jesus of Nazareth. So they just kind of sewed the concepts together. They are followers of Jesus, of Nazareth. So they just conveniently shortened this to calling it the Nazarene sect, the follower of the Nazarene. Paul explains that he belongs to a group of people more commonly known as the Way, which was the same group of people. It just had several different names at this time. And... Paul says it just so happens that the people who belong to the way have been recognized as being a 
part of Judaism, under the umbrella of Judaism. And he said, just like the Pharisees are a sect of Judaism, just like the Sadducees are a sect of Judaism, the Roman Empire has legally declared the way a sect of Judaism. They didn't realize that Christianity would ultimately part ways with Judaism. See, the, the early uh, Jews that got saved, converted, continued to worship in the synagogue. They didn't immediately make a break from their Judaism. So they believed differently than the rest of the Jews, but they worshipped in the same place. So at this point, because Judaism was legally recognized in the Roman Empire as a legitimate religion, because in the Roman Empire you couldn't have a religion that was not sanctioned by the Roman government. So the way fell under Judaism as just a branch of that. So he says, as such, a member of this legal sect, legally recognized sect of Judaism, he says even further that it is in accordance with the law and what is written in the prophets, and therefore the charges they are bringing against him about trying to destroy Judaism and everything about Judaism, he says, is just not right. We're a part of Judaism. And this is all absurd to bring these kind of charges against me. And then in summary, as he wraps up his opening statement, he says, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. This is the second time, as I've mentioned, that he claims to be blameless. Now, the blamelessness of the apostles, you have to understand, is vital to the integrity of the gospel message. It is vital to the appropriate, effective foundation of Christianity. If the founders, the foundation stones, Jesus Christ the founder and his group, if they were scamps, if they were scoundrels, the whole movement goes down the tubes. If you can prove them to be corrupt, the whole following is corrupt. The whole religion is corrupt. So it is vital that those who are the founders, the foundational stones, the apostles, Jesus Christ himself, are found and proven to be people of complete integrity. Otherwise, the entire movement is completely dismissed as illegitimate. See, if, if skeptics can prove that the foundation of a movement or an organization or religion is faulty, they have all the proof they need to summarily dismiss it. There are there are cults that we have today whose founders are, are they were scamps. They were scoundrels. They were, they were involved in scandalous things. And I, any, any honest person looks at the founders of these cults and sees the, uh, the feet of clay of their founders and should know enough to say, that's enough that I don't want to spend any time with this group. It got off to a bad start, and it hasn't gotten better ever since. The public record is clear about the corruption of many religions we have today being traced back 
to its founder. But the record of Jesus is unblemished. The record of the apostles, the records are unblemished. And Paul, being an apostle born out of due season, he claims, I'm unblemished. I am promoting the kingdom of God, and it cannot be a mark against Christianity because of anything I've done. My lifestyle, scandal, it will not detract from the effectiveness, the truthfulness, the integrity of the gospel because I don't have any scandal. The larger the church grows, the more opportunity there is for corruption to creep in. But that doesn't define Christianity. Christianity is defined by its founder and by the apostles. And there are still people today who are people of integrity, even though there's a lot of wolves that have crept in, a lot of corruption that has crept into Christianity through the centuries. If you would study church history, you should brace yourself because it is full of corruption. It is shocking. It is shameful, the things that have gone on in the history of the church. But again, the integrity goes back to the integrity of its founder. So now we have to overcome some of the clergy today who are being discovered to be corrupt. We're having to overcome the reports of the priesthood and child molesters and the scandals of, of stealing money, misappropriation of funds. And unfortunately, the interpretation of that by the world is that Christianity is fraudulent because there are fraudulent people found within Christianity, and that simply isn't the case. One of the biggest weapons hell has against the kingdom of God in influencing people away from the kingdom of God is corrupting the church and destroying its reputation in the eyes of the world. And the greatest, one of the greatest challenges the church today faces is preserving its integrity, which is difficult to do in view of the many scandals that are coming forth. And it's difficult to do in view of the congregational members who associate themselves with church, who associate themselves with Christianity, who maybe come and act somewhat like a Christian on Sunday but live like the devil the rest of the week. We have to overcome these things to preserve the integrity of Christianity. And we should not have to do that. So the integrity of the founders and the integrity of the adherents of Christianity, of Christianity are vital for making Christianity believable and acceptable and integrous in this day and age. I don't want to be a part of those who will, who will smear the reputation and the integrity of Christianity and of the church. The second point I want to make out of this scripture reading, has to do with the pursuit of holiness. Paul said in the 16th verse, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Notice the ongoing dynamic. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing. I strive always. I strive continuously. I strive every day. 
Every hour that I live, I strive. Striving is an ongoing project. I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Paul makes a, a point, a bold claim about being blameless to that point. My history proves that I am blameless. But then he makes a declaration, I have also committed myself to strive at all times to remain blameless. He just, you know what Paul just did right there? He set himself up to be more highly scrutinized by everybody listening to him. I mean, just, just think about it now. If I'm going to stand before you today... And I'm going to make a proclamation, folks, don't worry about me, I'm perfect. The first thing you're going to do is you're going to try and figure out how to prove me wrong. It won't take you long to find evidence I was lying to you. But the dynamic is when Paul stood before Felix and said, I have a flawless, blameless record, number one. And number two, I make it my daily effort to strive to continue to be integrous, to have a clean conscience before God and man. Now he has thrown down the gauntlet. Everybody there wants to knock him down a notch. Everybody wants to prove you do not strive. We just found a chink in your armor. You are not who you claim to be. See... Paul pursued holiness. Integrity and holiness is not a one-time award that you get from God. A plaque that you hang on your wall, a diploma or a certification for having completed a course and you are now holy and here's my document to prove it. Holiness, the pursuit of holiness is an ongoing daily walk yesterday is gone it's a matter of record it's a matter of history and you are still writing your story today and you will be writing your story tomorrow and you'll be writing your story this whole week you must continue to pursue holiness and walk in that way it's a never-ending pursuit of life it's a long, lifelong series of decisions that you have to make con to continue to pursue holiness. And holiness is not what you believe in. Holiness is what you faithfully put into practice in being obedient to God. It goes on every day of your life. Number three. The curse of convenience. Several days later, if you anymore, go away. When I find it convenient, I'll call you back. Then it says at the same time he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Now, here is really the crux of my message today. Paul has this opportunity to witness. He doesn't.
doesn't know if this is a one-shot deal or not, but he wants to make the most out of his opportunity, right? He doesn't know if he'll ever have another opportunity before Felix. He knows he has at least this one chance. What should he speak about? All right, you get one chance to preach before Felix. What will be my sermon subject? I mean, if I got to preach a dozen sermons, I could, I could get it all in. But I get one shot, maybe. He doesn't know that Felix will give him another chance. What do I want to preach about? So he has to choose his subject matter. Don't waste this precious opportunity. And I find it fascinating that Luke says Paul chose as his subject matter righteousness, self-control, and judgment. Don't you find that an interesting sermon outline for your one-shot opportunity to witness to a man in hopes that he will become a Christian? If you have one shot to witness to somebody, how many of you thought that the first thing you want to talk about to them about is about righteousness and self-control and judgment and hope that they're going to get saved because you preached that? Isn't this fascinating? We're sure that Paul spoke about faith in Christ because... Felix was curious about these people, about the way. He'd heard about them. He's, he's studied a little bit about them. He's curious about them. His wife is a Jewess, and she's related to Herod. So he's, he's, he's involved, even though he's not a Jew himself, he's involved in that Jewish world. He connected to that, and he, and he knows a little bit about this cult this, this sect that has arisen uh, in, in Judaism. And he, he's very, very fascinated by it. Wants to know more about it. And so as, as he gives Paul an opportunity to explain a little bit more about what this is all about. Luke does not record that Paul kept it basically about Jesus Christ. Resurrected one, the Messiah who came crucified by his own, risen on the third day, uh, died for our sins. You know, that's the basic message of salvation. But he dives right into some pretty heavy stuff. And I want to tell you that the subjects that are listed here, righteousness, self-control, and judgment, I think we can safely say these are integral parts of the gospel message. These are the, re, let me call it, the reality check of Christianity. If the message of salvation is only that Jesus died for all lost sinners and you can put your trust in him and go to heaven, we are missing some vital components of the gospel message. Salvation is far more than just putting your trust in Jesus and hoping you go to heaven Therefore, salvation, the salvation message, the, the, the foundation of it, the critical parts of the salvation message is that you are called to be disciples of Jesus. And as such, it's more than having your sins forgiven. It's making a commitment to Him that will change your life. 
And people who come to a saving knowledge of Jesus without realizing what they are signing up for, pretty soon, pretty quickly drop out. Because they say, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. I thought you were getting up a load to go to heaven. I want to go. But I didn't have any clue you were talking to me about righteousness. What's all this? I didn't hear that, that message. I didn't hear anything when you told me about getting saved, about self-control. And people are disappointed when it takes too long to find out that an integral part of the message is righteousness, self-control, and judgment. We need to tell people as early in the process as we can that when Jesus called people to follow him, they called, he called them to come and do what? Take up your cross. The message was integrated. Lord, we want to follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, well, let me tell you what that's going to take. The foxes have holes. The birds have nests. I don't have a place to lay my head. I don't have a house. I, I, I have to sleep wherever I can. And even the animals have some place they can call their home. I have no home. You're going to follow me? It's not going to be easy to follow me. He tells one person, sell everything you got, sell it out, cash it in. Get your cross, pick it up and follow me. Because Jesus was not shy about letting people know what the cost of discipleship is. Now, you cannot earn your way to heaven. But you have to understand when you're signing up to follow Jesus, you're not just signing up to get a free pass to glory. You are signing up to follow Him. I think that's where people miss the boat. They don't understand what's involved in making a commitment to Jesus. It's not there for just for what He can give you. It's there for what you can do for Him. So Paul speaks to him about righteousness Self-control and judgment. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be there for that little sermonette? What's he going to tell Felix about self-control? How's he going to say this and, and keep his attention? Let me go through these very quickly. First of all, I submit to you Christianity is most assuredly about righteousness. Jesus spoke about righteousness mainly as something you do. The Beatitudes. Things that he expected them to do. It would be considered righteous acts. Paul developed righteousness more than just things you do. He developed righteousness as a something that you receive from God, through Christ, as a gift, because your righteousness is not good enough to please God. Now Jesus was speaking on a practical level. These are things you ought to do as responsible people. But Paul took it to another level and said, but that will not save you. It's the right thing to do, but it will not save you. The only thing that will save you is Christ's righteousness through you manifested through you. You accept Him as your righteousness. It was a state of being, not a state of acting. 
Christ in righteousness imputed to us. Either way, whether we're talking about imputed righteousness that puts us in right standing with God, or functional righteousness describes, uh, described uh, as, as obedience, the fact remains that everything that is unrighteous has no place in our lives when we follow Christ. Christianity is about righteousness. Converts need to understand that. You know, if we say, I want you to come, and I want you to, I'm going to throw down the challenge to come and receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, they had better understand that they are coming to make a commitment for a change in their life and a change in their leader. Don't just come up here and think that you're purchasing some sort of an agreement. A pass into heaven. Come and realize you are making a commitment. It's going to cost you something. Number two, Christianity is about self-control. Oddly enough, as much as people love their autonomy, some are still drawn to the challenge of discipline. As much as people want to be free to do whatever they want to do without being impeded, without being restricted, without being told, no, you can't do that. Oddly enough, some people are still drawn to things that demand of them a certain amount of self-discipline. There are religions in this world they are drawn to that challenge them in the area of self-discipline. Christianity is not the only one that challenges people in self-discipline. So people find those, and they are challenged. They say, yeah, that's what I want to do. I need more discipline in my life. Well, Christianity is definitely about self-control. Some religions require extensive meditation. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't do yoga meditation because my legs will not cross like a pretzel anymore. Forget it. I'm not going to join that one. There are certain things that are required of certain, certain uh, uh, religions that, that just don't appeal to me. Uh, there, many religions require periods of fasting. Some religions require pilgrimages that you have to make. There, there are uh, one prominent religion today in the world today, second largest religion in the world, has rigid, stringent calls to prayer throughout the day. Doesn't appeal to me. I don't want to stop what I'm doing wherever I am, throw a little mat down and face some certain direction in the world and spend my time in prayer through the disruption of everything else. I don't want to do that. I found out in Christianity, I can pray when I walk. I can pray when I drive. I can pray when I'm... I, 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 can, I can pray all the time. I don't have to stop and go through this ritual. That doesn't appeal to me. And some, Christ, some, some religions even... Demanding and requiring self-flagellation. Beat yourself. Inflict pain. Open the wounds. Beat your back. Take a knife and hit the forehead until you're just flowing with blood. Crawling on your hands and knees until the bones are shining through because you've crawled for miles to make your pilgrimage. Religions requiring these kinds of self-discipline. And if these religions make such demands on their adherents, 
Don't try to gloss over the element of self-discipline and self-control in Christianity because it is about walking in the Spirit as a, as a way of yielding to His leading and crucifying fleshly appetites. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind... Governed by the flesh is nothing but death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but you are in the realm of the spirit. If, indeed, the spirit of God lives in you. Self-control. How do we do that? Because through Christianity you have the aid of the Holy Spirit to reign in the flesh. You cannot do it on your own. Number three, Christianity is about judgment. It's an unbalanced message to preach nothing but the love of God. It is unfortunate that that becomes the main message today. God loves you. Well, yes, he does. It's not untrue. But we preach an unbalanced message if we don't remind people that he is a God of love and he is a God of judgment as well. If we preach heaven, you have to understand that the counterpart is that there is a hell for those who are disobedient. We can't shy away from that. That's an unbalanced message. Have to make people aware. Some people commit themselves to love God, to live for Him, to follow Him, serve Him, simply because they are overwhelmed by His magnificent love. Some people need to remember that hell is licking up at their heels to keep their nose to the trail. Hell is as much an incentive to live right for some people as simply being compelled by the love of God. One might, person might say, I just love him so much. I want to I serve him with all my heart. While the other person is saying, I don't want to die and go to hell. I do love him, but it's hell that keeps me from backsliding. It's hell that reminds me why I need to get up and do what I'm supposed to be doing. Because I don't want to miss heaven and end up in eternal punishment. There is a reward for the faithful. There is a punishment for the wicked. The subject of judgment is a reality check in Christianity. If you do right, you'll be rewarded. If you do wrong, judgment day will not be pretty. Recent statistics reveal that the average Christian attends church twice a month. Not too many years ago, the average was four times a month, considering that there were probably as many as seven or eight opportunities in a week to attend church. Now the opportunities to attend church have dwindled, and so have the number of times that people gather to church. It's a shocking trend. Not only is total church attendance down in the U.S., but the commitment of those still attending church is waning as a trend. 
It's a sad commentary on Christianity. It, it really is a commentary on collectively our commitment and devotion and dedication to God. We are living in a day, a time, a culture, a society when so many things are competing with church. Businesses remain open on Sundays that keep people from being able to come to church oftentimes. Not to mention that, but because we've, we've got cars and we can get around so much easier and our world has shrunken and, and there's so many things going on in the world and, and, and parents have kids and kids are involved in things and the people who are organizers of the sports don't care it's Sunday. And they, they schedule their games and their activities and whatever they're doing, their wrestling, their basketball, their soccer, their, they schedule them on Sundays and parents are, are making decisions and they're saying, now our kids are in sports and they made a commitment, but we're in church on Sunday and for, for some reason, a good number of times, sports wins. And the message is very clear, this is more important than church. That's the bottom line. No matter how you dissect this, a decision has been made. So we've come to a point where now we collectively go to church twice a month. That's how important God is to us. The integrity of the church and the consequential effectiveness of the church, I'm telling you today, people, is at risk because if the trend continues we'll be once a monthers if the current trend continues churches will close because it's no longer important there's too many other things that are important the integrity shouldn't we be preaching more about righteousness and self-control and judgment rather than just minimizing what it means to say a sinner's prayer and go our separate ways and do what we want to do. Felix is uncomfortable with this little sermon. The Bible talks about he was afraid. Fear. Fear gripped him. Fear must have gripped him because of the sermon because of what Paul was saying. Fear must have gripped him either because the Holy Spirit was dealing with him on these issues of righteousness where he knew it wasn't righteous. Issues of self-control where he knew where he had no self-control. Issues of judgment where he knew he was headed for a judgment. I don't know. Maybe fear gripped him because he, he was thinking, man, I almost got myself into a movement that's going to take over my life. I don't know what the fear was, but fear gripped him. And he couldn't handle this message that Paul had just delivered him. And he just dismissed it. All for now. Can't handle it anymore. Go away. If I can get myself back together, I'll call you back another time. But this is not a good time for me. I'm about to lose it. And then he did call Paul back. Now here's what, I'm, here's what I'm trying to say. Paul said, 
I strive always to have a clear conscience before man and God. And I told you he set himself up. And Luke says that Felix was thinking, I just wish this guy would give me a bribe. Because if he'd give me a bribe, I would let him go. Now, he could let him go anyway, but he was wanting a bribe. He thought he could get something out of Paul. Maybe he knew Paul's family. Maybe they were well-to-do. We don't know much about Paul's family. Maybe he thought, here's, here's something I can milk him for a little money, and I'll have something to show for it. He can go his way. So Felix is saying, I wish he would offer me a bribe, and he wouldn't do it. He said, I'll call him back again. He wouldn't do it. I'll call him back again. He wouldn't do it. And all Paul had to do was offer him a bribe, and he's free, and his testimony is ruined. And when Paul said, I strive every day to keep my integrity, I strive every day to have a clear conscience before men and God, he made a proclamation, and the devil challenged him, and Felix set him up. And for Felix, he may have not really been wanting to trick Paul into doing the wrong thing. But the effect, the final effect would have been exactly that. That after having proclaimed himself to have a keen interest in doing the right thing and pleasing God and, and having a clear conscience, all of a sudden we find out Paul is corrupt. And that's the reason you got to watch yourself. That's the reason you have to pursue holiness because there will be opportunities for you to prove yourself not really sincere about pursuing holiness. And Paul was given the opportunity over and over and over again to compromise his testimony. And he passed the test. Felix said, there's got to be a more convenient time. And that excuse, that deflection, is one of hell's most effective weapons against all seekers. If hell cannot dampen their curiosity to begin with, the next step is hell will downplay the urgency. You can hear hell's argument. Sure, great idea. You need to get your life straightened out. You need to get your act cleaned up. We agree. You need to do that. You just don't need to do it today. There's plenty of time. Making that kind of a commitment is a pretty big step, and you're not really in the place at this time in your life where you need to be getting religious. You're still young. You're too busy. You can't make that commitment yet. Someday, not now, a more convenient time. But today is the day. Hell's big lie is a more convenient time is better. The truth is there's never a more convenient or better time than right now.